Amen. Well, we are continuing our series, like I said at the beginning of this evening, in 2 Corinthians. So you can take your Bibles out and turn to the book of 2 Corinthians. We are in chapter 4. And if it feels like it's been a while since you've been back in 2 Corinthians, it's because it has been. I think it was November 17th. Someone can correct me afterwards if I'm wrong that we were last in it. So we're picking up where we left off in verse 16. So that's 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. That's our passage for tonight. And as we prepare to hear God's word, won't you pray with me one more time? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege it is to hear from you in the word before us. I pray tonight that though we see dimly, God, your word would shine and remind us of heavenly realities and spiritual realities that are true right now for us and hope that awaits us. Help us to hear and to understand and to bear fruit tonight, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, I will read it for us, verses 16 through 18. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This is God's word. Amen. A time horizon plays a crucial role in evaluating a cost. In economics, when short-term volatility rocks the stock market, one will look to a time horizon to discern whether to keep the course or to cash it all in. For example, the shorter the investment, one is less likely to take on great cost in the present. But the longer the investment, one is more likely to weather the present volatility for a greater future total return return. A time horizon plays a crucial role in evaluating a cost. You might not be a financial person, so let's take it to daily life, practical life. Maybe you work out at a gym and your time horizon controls how you evaluate each cost of working out. You have to get up early and respond to that alarm. You have to engage and feel those weights, and by the end, your arms and legs feel like jello in the midst of a workout. The cost is understood in relation to a time horizon of future good health, strength, some sort of return. I'm told it's the same with parenting. The present cost, and I hear there's great present cost, and investment into children now is ultimately understood over a greater time horizon with the hopes of seeing them flourish for a lifetime. A time horizon plays a crucial role in evaluating a cost. 
Tonight we come to a text and there are visible costs in these three or so verses. There's a time horizon and there's an evaluation that's made. And so my header or title, if you will, for this text is simply an eternal evaluation. An eternal evaluation. When we have the evaluation of the cost of a Christian and we see it over an eternal time horizon, it will have great impact on how we persevere and how we continue today. God's word tonight is for those who are evaluating the realities of affliction and suffering. And maybe that's you. Evaluating the realities of suffering and affliction and the reasons and weighing the reasons to persevere. And the word is simply getting at this tonight for us. Do not lose heart. There is more than meets the eye. Do not lose heart. There is more than meets the eye. It's an eternal evaluation. That's what these few verses are. And so maybe you're tempted tonight to lose heart. What keeps you going? (laughs) Is it positivity? Just got to stay positive. Is it distraction? Is it your family? Is it fear? Is it ignoring hardship? Is it a quest for pleasure or in bringing down an enemy or success? Whether good or bad motivations, these things can be effective to a degree, but over the long haul they will fail us. And Paul wants us to see the big picture. He wants us to zoom out, to step back, and evaluate life with a greater time horizon. And so friends, do not lose heart. There is more than meets the eye. Let's take a look at this in verse 16 where it starts. We'll call this Paul's resolve. Take a look in your Bibles. He says, so we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. The verb there, to lose heart, means to behave badly. And it's especially in a cowardly or a negligent way. It describes this sort of weariness that leads to despair or a slackening of duties or conduct. And so Paul's saying he is resolved to not shrink back or slack from fulfilling his calling in ministry. And the we there in the text, he's referring to those who are engaged with him in his apostolic ministry. Now the question might be, why would Paul be tempted to lose heart in the first place? And if you're asking that question, I'll give you a bit of a pass because it has been so long since we've been in this uh, book. I thought it might be helpful to quickly recap some evidence of why Paul might be tempted to lose heart. If you take a look back at chapter 1, verse 8, Paul describes his apostolic ministry in this way. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Okay, that's a discouraging first piece of evidence, right? Uh, But there's more. Verse 9, he goes on to say, We felt that we had received the sentence of death. Chapter 2, he mentions a painful visit and a painful letter 
that was written out of affliction and anguish of heart and tears. In 2.13, he describes how his spirit was not at rest. And in chapter 4, he speaks of his experience of affliction in every way, he says, of being perplexed, persecuted, and struck down. All that evidence just stacking on top of one another. The evidence is clear for anyone who's watching Paul's life. He had many reasons to lose heart. He did. And while, yes, he is resolved not to lose heart, this evidence of hardship in life and ministry is creating a problem for him. And it's problematic because the visible weakness and hardship of his ministry was impacting his relationship with the church in Corinth. And that's a really important context to understand for the whole letter. We, we read later in the letter that there are these so-called false or super apostles. I always thought that sounded very cool, super apostles, but they're negative characters, all right? Real people, historical people, let's call them false apostles. And they're boasting in themselves and commending themselves and their teaching to the Corinthians. And Paul is worried that the church might be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And the attack from these false apostles seems to be that Paul was inferior to them because of the cost and affliction he experienced in ministry. The strategy of their attack on Paul was to use the visible weakness of Paul to conclude greater authority for themselves in the eyes of the Corinthians. Do you get it? And so this is the point. The Corinthians were in danger of misevaluating Paul and his ministry to them. They were in danger of allowing what they saw in Paul's hardship to affect what they were willing to hear from him. And what I find so instructive about this for us is, is how Paul addresses the problem. Paul does not downplay his hardship. We just read about it. He does not downplay his weakness. He does not downplay his affliction. In fact, it's just the opposite. He highlights it. He brings it up. And I wonder if I could talk to you tonight who might be experiencing great anguish of heart, affliction, or unrest. You read what Paul's been saying earlier in the letter and you think, I can actually resonate with that to the one who feels like maybe you're just barely holding it all together, the one who has been misunderstood, like Paul, by those he truly loves. And friends, I, I hope that you see that the Bible doesn't downplay the significant reasons one might have to lose heart at all. It doesn't downplay it. Even the Apostle Paul had a time when he was despairing of life itself in ministry. The Bible acknowledges that life can be incredibly hard, even and especially for those who are following Christ. It normalizes for us a world that's broken and in need of renewal. Even in church, even in ministry life, even when you have wonderful facilities like this, no one is immune. And get this, we do not have to protect the ministry of College Church 
by pretending life is easier than it really is. We do not have to protect the ministry of the church by hiding our weakness. We don't have to protect a Christian worldview by downplaying the challenging realities that we still experience as Christians. But I think that can be our temptation. My message will be more likely to, see, to be received if I put my best foot forward. If I hide those things, keep them away. But that's not how Paul addresses these concerns. He highlights his weakness, strength and weakness, the series title. And he highlights his resolve at the same time in verse 16. And maybe questions are coming to mind. Well, how can he do this? How can I do this? And let me uh, suggest the answer is not found in simply looking at the Apostle Paul and thinking, wow, what an inspiring person. Although he is inspiring, and it should inspire us to some degree. Ultimately, the answer is not found there. It's found in treasuring his reason for it. So there is more than meets the eye to Paul's weakness and his affliction. And so if the first half of verse 16 is Paul's resolve, the second half of verse 16 is Paul's reason, his reason for it. From the second half of 16 to the end of verse 18. It moves from Paul's resolve to Paul's reason. And what follows in our text is some of the most beautiful and treasured language by Christians throughout the centuries. And I am sure many of you have this verse maybe up on your wall in your home or the background on your phone. These are beautiful words. And Paul employs the rhetorical use of four contrasts, repeated to help the reader be moved to reevaluate the present costs and weaknesses of life as a Christian. That's what he's doing. So take a look at 16, the second half of the verse. It reads, Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. This outer self, what is it? Well, the, the outer self should not be understood purely as just the body. It, it, it's, it's more than that. But what's viewed, it, it's ultimately what is viewed through a worldly lens. It is a temporary evaluation of life. Whereas the inner self is a, a, a fuller picture of what's real. It is an eternal lens, an evaluation And so in a culture, in context, like we talked about in Corinth, that values and would value strength and man-made glory and honor visible to others, Paul calls for a reevaluation. And he acknowledges the apparent weaknesses of the outer self. He says it's wasting away. And yet in the midst of this, the inner self, he says, is the passive object of a day-by-day renewal. A renewal is at work. I was talking to Ben Panner about this passage, and he said it's like a doctor is holding up an x-ray image to evaluate what's really going on. I thought that was really good. I thought that was so good that I had to give him credit for it. That, that's helpful. There's, there's more going on. A doctor knows the best evaluation is not simply taking into account what's visible, right? I wouldn't want a doctor like that. 
Well, you look all right. Well, I don't feel great. Somebody help me. (laughs) It's not simply what's visible that encompasses everything that needs to be taken into account for an evaluation, but it's also what is happening that is not visible. And so too with Paul's ministry, an evaluation is not complete, he's saying, by just looking at it from the outside. Paul's reason for resolve is the reality of renewal. A renewal is taking place. A day-by-day renewal is at work. And he explains this renewal in verse 17. Take a look. He says, this is another contrast. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now, if you're following, you'll realize that Paul has referred to his affliction earlier as despairing of life itself. And now he refers to it as light and momentary. How can he do this? How does that make sense? How can both of those things be true? And friends, not only is this true for Paul, but it's true for each one of us in this room who are Christ followers. How do we know that there is something good that will come out of our affliction? How do we know that our suffering tonight that we walk in with will not be wasted? How do we know that there is purpose in our hardship? How do we know that our affliction is not simply something to to wish away, but to understand it as preparatory in nature? How do we know these things? And if we do know them, at least you need to be reminded of it tonight. Look back at chapter 3, verse 18. I think it puts it well when Paul says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Jesus Christ is the image of God. And as we behold him, as we trust in him, by faith, we are the objects of the Holy Spirit's work of renewal, transforming us into Christ-likeness. The reality is we live in a beautiful and yet very, very broken world. And we know our world is longing for renewal. And Jesus, the Savior for sinners, came as a man to take the affliction and the death that we deserved. And by a worldly evaluation, he lost at the cross. But by an eternal evaluation, he won for all time and for all people who put their faith and trust in him. And so he conquered death by his resurrection and offers eternal life to all who trust him. In him. And so we're not there yet, but friends, renewal is at work today. It says day by day, we are being transformed. Our glory is in one sense already and not yet. And it's only Jesus, the Savior of sinners, who can take our groanings, the groanings of this world, and use them for future glory. How amazing is that? He takes the groanings and he uses them for future purpose and glory. Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. He is alive and glorified now and he is the guarantee 
of our glory. This is the reason, not just for Paul, but for all Christians to not lose heart. This is why we treasure these words, right? And so are you weary? Are you weighed down? Are you despairing? I do not doubt the cost of your affliction. I do not doubt that it seems incredibly great. Look at verse 17. The slight momentary affliction is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Receive that. (laughs) What good news for us. Now, it might not be your first instinct to view affliction as preparatory. We long for comfort, for security, for ease. And we can look for counterfeit version of that that promises, but it does not to fulfill us in this world or in Wheaton, Illinois. But it won't. It won't be found here. And so we cannot allow affliction to be evaluated as something simply to despise. Uh, One commentator put it this way, in the divine economy, affliction actually generates glory. Again, an amazing reality. Affliction is generating glory. Just like our Savior, life is coming through death. And as Christ followers tonight, we, we are able to come to God's word and we're able to reevaluate our pain and our affliction. And maybe you need to reevaluate, reweigh your affliction, find comfort in these words. Did you notice the relationship between affliction and glory in verse 17? It's not a one to one relationship. It's not as much affliction as you experience, you will have the equal and opposite uh, impact of glory that will come about. No. Look at verse 17 again. It says, The affliction is preparing a glory beyond all comparison. The glory of our eternal Christ likeness in the presence of God is greater than we can comprehend right now. It is so much greater. This is a very uh, simple and basic worldly example. Stay with me. Imagine, uh, the the image came to mind this week of a playground and a teeter-totter. We all know what teeter-totters are, right? Okay. Um, And a child, an older child, sitting on one side of the teeter-totter, legs on the ground, so it's completely popped up in the opposite direction. And a younger child comes by and crawls on and manages to get on the other side of the teeter-totter. And the child puts their full weight on it. And might even bounce around and try to move it. Fully holding the child, the full weight of it. But the weight on the other side is so great that it won't be moved. It won't change or be altered at all. God wants us to rightly evaluate our affliction and he invites us to bear the full weight and to understand the full weight, the heaviest of our afflictions that burden us and weigh us down. We can put the full weight of them on the scale and they do not even compare to the glorious life ahead. 
They cannot take away from what's coming. And in fact, the paradox is they, they prepare us for what's coming. What a comfort it is to evaluate from that perspective. What a comfort to know we can have reason to not lose heart because there is more going on in our affliction. There is more than meets the eye. And that's where Paul finishes out in verse 18. He gives two more contrasts, letting the readers know where his eyes are fixed. He says, we do not fix our eyes on the seen, but the unseen. Why? Because the seen is transient, but the unseen is eternal. Maybe you've walked in tonight and you're struggling, and you're struggling to keep going. And you're in danger of losing heart, of behaving badly, or maybe that's even happened this week. Your conduct as a Christian is not appropriate. It's not being lived in a manner worthy of your calling. Maybe you're silent when given opportunities to share the gospel, or you're too busy to spend time in prayer or Bible reading, or you're too discouraged and and focused on the broken world to be moved to enjoy God. And to ponder these realities that are true. I think we can all be, at some level, uh, tempted to live in that way or have lived in that way. Might it be where our eyes are fixed? Paul isn't blind to the costs. He's not blind to the hardship. He, He went out of his way to acknowledge how hard it's been. But that's not the full picture that he sees. We can look at life like we're at the Art Institute of Chicago and we've been standing in front of a great, grand, and magnificent mural and we've been standing too close for too long. We can be absorbing the scene right in front of us but not taking a step back and understand how that scene is actually understood in light of the whole. Paul is saying to take a, take a step back and by faith, by faith we can see the unseen. By faith we hold on and fix our eyes to the eternal, not the transient. He says, take a step back, fix your eyes there. And as we close, I think of the quote that's attributed to Michelangelo, the Italian sculptor and artist. He once said this, the more the marble wastes, the more the statue grows. Even when our outer self is wasting away, we do not lose heart because our inner self is being renewed day by day to look more and more like our Savior. Even when we experience great affliction, and I know there are, all of us in this room have, and there are many in our church who have experienced overwhelming amount of affliction, we do not lose heart, for it's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Even when what we see in our lives and in our world is discouraging, we do not lose heart. We look to the unseen. Even when The transient is troubling. We do not lose heart. 
eternity is right around the corner. It's this eternal evaluation. Not minimizing the costs, the hardship in the present. Acknowledging the full weight of them. And yet there is an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Take heart, take comfort, live well in light of that reality. Uh, May we all do that. Pray. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word tonight and thank you for uh, these wonderful three verses that remind us to properly set our eyes not on the seen but on the unseen by faith to trust in the eternal, not the transient. Lord, help us to do this. We know you don't call us just to ignore what's in front of us, the troubling things in our lives, in our world, but help us to understand these things in light of eternity. Lord, I pray for those who are discouraged or tempted to lose heart, Lord. Would you encourage them according to your word by your spirit tonight? that you are renewing them day by day. Suffering is not wasted. Affliction is not purposeless. You are accomplishing your purposes even when we can't see it or understand it. You've given us a glimpse to better walk through it. We thank you that we do it not alone, that you are with us, and we ask that you comfort and encourage each one here to follow Christ faithfully and to live well in light of these realities. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.